Hi, you're listening to the Inside Family Law Podcast. Um, this is your interviewer, Zoe Durand, and I'm here at the AFCC conference in Sydney reporting live. Um, and I'm very lucky to be speaking with two of the um, esteemed presenters. We have Dr. Astrid um, Metalis uh, from South Africa. She's a psychologist. Hi, Astrid. Hello, Zoe. And we also have um, uh, Craig Schneider, um, who is a lawyer and mediator from South Africa as well. Hello, Zoe. Nice to be here. Yeah, no, lovely to have you. So look, um, I'd like to talk a bit about, um, I guess, a sort of summary version of what you presented on yesterday for our listeners. What is this parenting coordination? I must say it's not that well known here in, in Australia, but we'd like to know more. So perhaps if you could explain what, what is it really? Hmm. Okay. Um, essentially, parenting coordination is a post-divorce dispute resolution mechanism. So it's an extrajudicial procedure mm-hmm. where parents would, um, prior to getting divorced, would have agreed mm-hmm. that they want to have a parenting coordination clause in, for example, their parenting plan or their settlement agreement. And then should disputes arise, they can then approach the parenting coordinator to assist them to resolve the dispute. What, what we have seen, particularly in South Africa, and being at this conference now, we quite clear it, uh, it happens in Australia as well, is that everybody works really hard in order to be able to move the divorce. But then once the divorce is finished, people and the practitioners seem to think that all disputes are resolved. However, we all know that it isn't, and most of the time the disputes either continue or they start afresh once the divorce has happened. Then what happens? How are we supposed to deal with them? How we contain them? And how we see parenting coordination is it creates a safe space for the parties with someone that they've appointed together by agreement to deal with their matters. So the person who is the parent coordinator acts as a mediator. 90 to 95% of his or her work is mediation to attempt to assist the parties to resolve the dispute. If they are unable to reach an agreement, and we need to realize that that at times is very difficult, then depending on the clauses in the agreement and the mandate which the, the PC has, then they assist them to come to an agreement or to issue a directive or make a recommendation around the dispute. The classic example, there's a dispute around a holiday. How do we share the holidays? The, the father may want the child for the first half. The mother says no, she wants for the first half because she has a specific arrangement. They can't resolve it. Instead of running off to lawyers, they rather come back into a PC process and PC process will be familiar to them, particularly if they've been involved in mediation. It's an extension of mediation in a post-divorce. So is it like an ongoing, so that person almost would have an ongoing relationship with both the parties, so it wouldn't just be like one big mediation, it might be like something comes up and they would help them resolve that, and then maybe a few months later something else would come up and they'd help them resolve, is that sort of the idea that they're almost like a caretaker post separate post post um you know divorce as you say or when they've had consent orders or a judgment from a court typically the parenting coordinator is appointed for a fixed period okay so there is a, a finite <laughs> however at the end of that fixed period the parents and the parenting coordinator can agree to continue for a further fixed period and really parenting coordination is there until the children are 18 or they're no longer minors. What I also think is important is that the majority of disputes that the parenting coordinator or PC is required to resolve are really non-legal disputes. 
where to collect the child, mm. what time to do the handover, mm. and as Craig said earlier, how to divide the holiday. Um, if you look at American research, uh, when they refer to high-conflict couples and they talk about 20% of these high-conflict couples or former couples usurp 80% of the court's time, then clearly parenting coordination offers a very effective alternative. And we also believe that the parenting coordinator does not usurp the power of the court as upper guardian of all minor children because should one parent not be in agreement with the decision um, of the parenting coordinator they can always approach the court for review. Sure. If, if I may add there as well is the mandate that's given to the PC is within the family law framework so for example what the PC does it assists the parties to implement the terms of the parenting plan mm -hmm. the PC is not there to vary so if you have contact and care or custody of your child and the father or your ex-partner comes in and wants that changed you can mediate it through the PC process mm -hmm. but as the PC you cannot make a decision that is going to vary the court order I am aware that in Australia they extremely perturbed about this issue that mm -hmm. the PC will take away judicial authority yes. absolutely and we don't see it as that way we see it as an adjunct it's mm -hmm. a process that is there to assist the court and it's a very it's a very quick process. People come to us with a dispute where you can see them within seven to ten days. It's very inexpensive mm, relative because to relative to court also because we're there to deal with the clients directly. Mm. We don't want to deal with the lawyers. So we mm. want to hear face to face what the people have to say. And our job as PCs is to assist the parties to come to their own agreement. Mm. We're not top down. We want to bring the agreement yeah. absolutely yeah. and empower them to make their own decisions yeah. because they are the parents. Yeah. We don't see ourselves as uber parent, yeah. as the default parent, not at all, but it's to assist the party because the way we see it as well is the parties, their current relationship hasn't worked. Yeah. That's why they've got divorced. Yeah. Sure. And just because they've got an agreement doesn't mean that they're their relationship is going to work so we've actually got to teach them and that's part of the PC's role is to educate the parents in a post-divorce scenario. Yes so the education concerns for example different aspects of child development, mm -hmm. it concerns the effects of ongoing acrimony on the child, mm. we um, discuss, we, we can also refer parents for co-parenting education so it is although the parents come to us when there's a dispute and they are not in agreement mm. the process is the is not only focused on the dispute the it's process the is where they communicate and absolutely, work issues. absolutely. and we yeah. also hope that when they have come for a few sessions they will learn how to actually resolve disputes without us. I was going to say, is it like we're not trying to create a dependency? No, <laughs> Maybe we're trying to not. empower them to be able to yes. have the communication skills and learn how to work yes. with each other so that eventually they, they won't, might not need the parenting coordinator. Correct. You know, that is, some might, but some yes. may not, you know? Yes. And some come and see you, they see you once 
and then maybe five, six years later, something else happens and they mm. come and see you. So this is not your regular weekly parenting coordination session. Mm. And that dependency is something that we actively fight against mm. because we believe that parents essentially know themselves what's best for them and their children. Mm. I also see it, Zoe, as a logical extension of the process that you have here in Australia. You have mandatory mediation. Sure. So you've got couples that are aware and they buy into the mediation mm. process. Why not take it the one step further? I don't understand why they don't. It's so segmented in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's logical. It works. You know, it cuts down court time. It frees court up for cases and financial resources, which we know in our country in South Africa, we don't have enough financial resources, but we are finding if we can keep, as Astrid said, you know, the 20% taking up 80% of the time, if we can take some of that up, our judicial system can assure, and I'd imagine the Australian judicial system can flow better. So what we look to do is create a contained space, and that container floats with the parties. Mm. as the children grow older. So, for example, I may be appointed for a couple for the first two years or four years. As the children get older, I may well say, I don't think I'm the appropriate PC. Your children are reaching certain development stages. I think you should go to a mental health professional who will then act as the PC and educate the, the parents around development. It's not therapy, very definitely not, nor is it legal advice. I want to make yes. that very clear. And that is one of the, the issues that we address in training, is that you, you are not there as a therapist, you are not there as a lawyer. It's a new profession, as it were. You're there as a parenting coordinator. You borrow a little bit from the law in that you, you operate within a certain legal framework. Yeah. So part of the training is that you have to understand the legal framework within which you work. Part of the training is how to involve children in the parenting coordination process. So the parenting coordinator not only speaks to the parents, but where appropriate, will speak to the children to hear their voice, to mm -hmm. hear their views, um, and then provide that feedback to the parents, which is often a very, very powerful tool when people hear what their children say and how they feel about the issues that the parents are arguing about or fighting about. So the other important thing is that parenting coordinators are either mental health practitioners, mm -hmm. social workers, psychologists, or legal practitioners with very specific training mm -hmm. and also experience in dealing with uh, families that are going through divorce, that maybe have a high conflict relationship and they also need to have mediation training. Zoe, what I'd also like to raise there is when Astrid mentioned that we do see children, mm. it's not as an assessment. Mm. It's to actually hear the voice of the child. Mm. Because many times, as we all know, as family practitioners, there's the, the one parent's view, the other parent's view, and the children's view can be very different. Yeah. And we're not having a situation, let's assess, is this an emotional assessment? It's a situation of the children coming into the space to talk to an independent person. It's also really good for the children to see who the person is and the space where mommy and daddy or pair their parents' dispute is being resolved. The, the other thing that I just want to highlight is the importance of the training not any person can just become a PC. I was going to ask that actually as a question. So how does one become, in South Africa or here in Australia, I mean, it's quite new here, so how, mm. does, how does one become a, 
Well, I, I can talk to South Africa at the moment is we do look at a 40-hour training, but we do look that the people that are trained must have completed a mediation training course because it's really difficult. You can't just jump in. A lot of lawyers with respect to them think that they mediate every day. They don't. They negotiate. And it's the same as mental health professionals. They don't necessarily mediate. They give therapy. It's neither one of the two. So we, we do, we provide a 40-hour training. We have done a 40-hour training in Perth, Western Australia in parenting coordination. And that is what is needed is that you go through a 40-hour training that must include role plays. It's not the, for me, one of the most important aspects of the training is not only the theory because that can be read about. It's been practiced in Ameri America for years, but we need the practical training and you get assessed during a training as to where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are. So it's a very hands-on, interactive training. We also uh, believe that people should have a profession. So you are either a professional legal practitioner or mental health practitioner. So the training for parenting coordination comes in at quite a high level. So this is post-professional training, post-mediation training, post-mediation experience. So the other thing I want to mention, uh, they talked a lot about it at this conference and when we were in Western Australia, is the whole issue of DV. You know, there's the whole dispute, can you mediate in a DV matter. My personal opinion with regard to mediation in DV, yes you can. You can't mediate about the DV, but you can still mediate and create a safe space to protect children. So if you can do that in mediation, in a post-divorce scenario, it can become even more important that the parents have a safe space to talk about possible DV, that the children can raise it, but without having to run off to court to get your interdicts and whatever else, but create a safe space that enables the family to continue to move forward. I think that's what our aim is, mainly as PCs. And with regards to DV, because it's a very serious topic and we address it very specifically in our training, there are all sorts of methods to ensure the safety of the family. You can have caucus sessions, they can come at different times, you know, essentially, we prefer to meet with both parents in one room at the same time, which is an interesting thing because frequently this could be the first time after a separation or a divorce that they're actually sitting together in the same room having to face the issues. But there's no rigidity around that. If there is domestic violence and it's better for them not to be in the same room, then that's what we do. It's a flexible process, depending Absolutely. on the family. Very definitely yes. so. And also, we learned of the FIFO, fly-in, fly-out issue. You know, if parents are working away from their children, then it can be a situation where it can still be conducted via Skype, mm. you know, or interactive or WhatsApp or whatever the situation is. So just because somebody is not there doesn't mean that the family can't move forward. Mm. It's a very, very expeditious process to ensure that the family move forward in a healthy way. What we're there to do is to create healthy parents. Healthy parents create healthy children and that needs to continue in a post-separation issue. What ideally would be best is if the PC clauses that provides for dispute resolution mechanism is included in parenting plans. Because if that clause is included in the parenting plan once and it's made an order of court, then once that order is made, when there is a dispute, a party is then prevented from running back to court. 
because they have agreed that they will resolve it in an alternative way. So it forces the parties to communicate and to deal with each other. And I guess, as you say, if they, if they can't agree and then ultimately um, the PC then makes some kind of decision and they don't agree with that decision, they still have the court then after Absolutely. that. There's a, there's a Absolutely. Yeah. And it may be a situation where you come to me and you say, I want my child back or I don't want my child to go to my father every weekend, alternate weekend. I'll work with you and your partner on it. But if we can't reach an agreement and you really are absolutely adamant that that's what you require, you are not prevented from approaching the court. So it's an interim mm. step. Mm. Where they, Similarly with regard to maintenance, in South Africa we do deal with certain maintenance matters, okay. but we don't make decisions. Mm. I, as, a, as a, a lawyer, I will hear from the, the man, I'll hear from the woman, I'll hear from the financially empowered party who wants to pay more or less, mm. hear from the other party what the reasonable needs are, mm. I can't make a decision, but I can make a recommendation. Mm. If they don't like the recommendation, they're still entitled to go to the maintenance court. Mm. But they do have an idea through an, an, an independent third party mm. as to where it would go. Similarly, with Astrid working mm. as a PC in, in children's matters, she can also give a recommendation in mm. respect of certain For example, if, if the one parent really wants to change the contact arrangements mm. quite significantly so as to vary the court order, one can then investigate that with the parents oh. and whereas you cannot make a decision because you're altering a court order, sure. you can make a recommendation, say, look, my recommendation or a proposal. Yeah. Yes, and then that parent can take that recommendation to court and again save court time because then the court doesn't have to start an assessment or an investigation um, at that stage. They already have the summary from the PC. So is it kind of like, well, reportable is the wrong word, but is it like what your... It's, Parties can take back what you have said. Absolutely, to the court. yes, okay. it's not so confidential, yeah. and our summaries are are very important. You very clearly, we we have a, a template that we use, but again, you don't have to stick to that. But you very clearly list the issues, you summarise the discussion, and then you you write down. The, the agreements, if agreements were reached, mm -hmm. so everything is clearly recorded um, and where no agreement is reached you can either issue a directive if you can, if, you, if it's within the mandate, alternatively make a recommendation or a proposal. And then in that scenario, for example, where Astrid's made a recommendation that it would be in the interests of the child, because that's obviously what we focus on, to vary the, the contact, you would still then need to bring your motion or your application to court mm. duly substantiated but the recommendation from the PC would have extra evidentiary value. Yeah, it's, it's of evidentiary value. At, sure. That's what mm. I want to say. It's persuasive. Mm. Yes, obviously it can be attacked by the single expert or mm. whatever the, the partner wants mm. to say. But the fact that also I believe that the court will then say, hold on, you have tried to resolve it without just running off to court. Yeah. You do actually have the best interest of the child at heart. That I think would be really uh, to the credit of the, of the applicant. Because mm. so many times as a lawyer I would see people are running off to court without saying, hold on, if we had actually spoken about this you could have got the relief without spending a whole lot of money which could actually have gone to the family. And, you know, people often listen to parenting coordination and they think, oh, it's all about making a decision. 
but the research that I did in South Africa showed that more than 85% of all the disputes brought to the parenting coordinators were settled in the mediation phase. Mm. So no decision needed to be made, so agreement was reached. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And where are we? I'm oh, sorry. The, the other issue I want to raise, in, I know in America, and Astrid can speak more to that, is that they want parenting coordination only for high conflict couples. Mm. In South Africa, we've done a different thing. And we've done it from, bottle, from the bottom up. We don't have legislation at the moment. Yes, we have guidelines in respect of PC. But what we do do, we encourage mediators and, pra and legal practitioners and mental health practitioners to include a PC clause in all consent orders or okay. consent papers okay. and parenting plans because if they need it, it's there. If they don't need it, it's fine. It's not going to cost them any more money. Whereas if they don't have it, they, they may have no disputes after. Absolutely. Yeah, but they may. It's a nice to have. And then if they don't have it in there, they then have to bring an application, incur more costs. So yeah. our our decision is rather have it from the very beginning. Mm. So it's just sort of being done at a grassroots level. You're saying yes. there's no legislation about it. It's just like, Correct. let's do this. Is yes. that what's yeah. happening in South yes. Africa? Yeah. Yes. yes, it we sort of grew and developed organically. And mm. from about 2012 onwards, more than 60, close to 70% of all divorce orders issued in the Western Cape High Court, where minor children are involved, included a parenting coordination clause. Has it changed things in terms of parties coming back to court for contraventions, for reviewing the orders, or has it reduced those numbers or not? Okay, we don't have statistics on that for mm. South Africa, mm. but if I look at other countries where this is practiced, namely America and Canada, there is some research to show a very significant reduction in relitigation, mm. which brings me to where is this practiced? So it started in America some 40 odd years ago and then Canada. And South Africa is the third country where it's widely practiced. Um, training has now happened in Australia, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, the UK, and maybe and in Spain, and maybe one or two other countries that I'm unaware of but it's really only practiced on a big scale in America, Canada and South Africa. Mm. And in certain states in America and provinces in Canada, they do have legislation and they have court rules. Um, but in South Africa, we are as yet unregulated, but mm. our Law Reform Commission has looked into it and we hope within the next few months to hear and see where they stand on this issue. And in Australia, where are we at? Because I mean, I have to admit, like this is quite, I've only heard about this quite recently. I've seen a little bit on LinkedIn and things have popped up and then I saw you at the conference and I thought I must speak to both of you about it. Right. Um, where are we at in Australia with parenting coordination? Well, we did, uh, 18 months ago, we did our first three day training in Perth under the auspices of Relationships Australia, mm -hmm. Western Australia. Then there was an 18-month period wherein we did um, online supervision and we worked with them and they started rolling out the um, cases. They've had, I think, a total of eight referrals, mm -hmm. some from the judiciary, some self-referred. And then earlier this week, we did the follow-up training to have a total of, of a 40-hour training. So we hope to have an ongoing relationship with 
Rawa and to see how they develop and progress. Um, and as far as the rest of Australia is concerned, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I am aware that with the Australia law reform, that they are looking at parenting coordination. Mm. I think that there, there is very definitely an interest and from all the practitioners yeah, that we've spoken to, I think, uh, to be blunt, there is going to be kickback from your legal fraternity yeah. because I think mm. they're going to be precious around holding on to their clients. But I think what we need to look at is a different way of thinking. If I work with clients that are either in mediation or in parenting coordination, not as their PC, but I assist them and I give them advice during the process, but don't run up the costs. And I let them go to the PC and I'm, I'm suggesting to all parties that are, are going through a breakup uh, or going through a divorce that they look to include a PC clause in their agreement. If their attorneys don't know about it, speak to the attorneys, let them do a little bit of research and say, look, we want to actually remain in control of our own family. And I think that's really important. It's very empowering. We've recently had a judgment that addressed several aspects of parenting coordination and um, it kind of clarified the mandate of the PC and makes it very clear what we can and cannot do with what Craig related to earlier about amending or varying um, a court order or the parenting plan. So what we've also done as part of our advocacy is we've drafted a parenting or dispute resolution clause that incorporates the salient aspects of that judgment and we distribute that among the judiciary and among the, the legal fraternity. Can I have a copy? Of course you can. <laughs> After the interview? Yes. We'll email it yes. to you with pleasure. The, yes. the other thing is, you know, when parents are working together, they genuinely want to be able to reach an agreement. And I think the PC process, I think you said there was a breach of a consent order. What did you say? There was, when people breach an order, yeah, well, they bring a yeah, contempt yeah, order, a contravention. I always hate contravention applications, to be honest, as a lawyer. And people uh, come back and they go, oh, this has happened. Do we run a contravention? Yes. And then, you, you know, <laughs> you, you run a contravention and inevitably the other side, you know, seeks um, to actually have the orders reviewed and then there's a Rice and Asplund case which I won't go into all of that but it all the other thing that happens is clients will come and see you and they'll say oh you know this has happened there's some minor infringement of something and you'll go oh but it's not really worth litigating about and they kind of just you know it, it's it you see that a lot like those those teething processes after mm. orders have been made correct um, and mm. that's why I actually was really excited about what you're doing both of you because I think parties do need that kind of scaffolding like that support yes. after that, that's made. a very nice way of putting it and yeah. also it will prevent contravention orders because I think the other problem that you have as a practitioner is your client comes to you and says look you know he's contravened or she's contravened They're the order and, and then you yeah. don't feel that it's serious enough but then your client feels that they're not heard mm. Where does it go? It falls Correct. into that gap. You know, and it's not then, enough to file an yes. application, but, yeah. yes, but... But then it may happen again and again, so then it becomes abusive, whereas if there is a PC, they can confront their ex-partner in that PC process mm -hmm. about the contravention. Mm -hmm. It will be a lot cheaper do for that because the cost of the PC, that's the other thing we must raise, is shared equally between the parties. Mm -hmm. So it's not one person has to cover all the costs. Mm -hmm. Both of them have agreed for the PC, okay? and therefore both of them are responsible for costs. Also, one must bear in mind that depending, at, depending on the ages of the children when the parents got divorced, the needs of the children change and no parenting plan 
can ever foresee or, or make provision for every eventuality. So a parenting plan and a contact arrangement that was entirely appropriate when the child was three is certainly not appropriate now that the child is 10. And then if you then have a parenting coordinator, you can together massage that process and make sure that the contact arrangements are in the best interest of the child and don't contravene any of the parents' rights to contact and so on. Well, look, thank you so much for that. Is there anything else? Um, where can people find out about what you're doing or the work that you're doing or get in touch with you? Yes, they can. We have a website called Pomegranate, like the fruit. So it's www.pomegranate.org.za and once they're on the website they can see what we do, where we train and so on. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you Dr Astrid Metalis and Mr Craig Schneider um, and yeah enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much.